thanks you guys for leading us. Well, uh, Carly and I have two kids, uh, Zoe and Caleb, and uh, Zoe's on the left. She is about 27 months old, and Caleb just turned one on Thursday. He's on the right. This is their little cousin in the middle. Um, one of their uncles is a firefighter, and so they got to visit the fire station and play on the fire truck. And uh, our kids like church. They like it a lot. Um, but they don't understand much about Jesus yet, but they love church. For them right now, church is a place where they can go play. Uh, there's lots of cool toys that we don't have at home. Um, Mom and Dad aren't there saying, no, don't touch that. And the, ha- the room where they play is childproof. You know, we tried to childproof our house, but it's just not totally possible. But our kids love church. They don't know much about Jesus. Uh, I think when we think about the world or America or Southern California, um, people don't like the church. They might like Jesus. You know, they might know something about Jesus. Uh, We could all spill out onto the streets here in the Allied Gardens neighborhood, go over to the San Diego State campus, and ask people what they thought about Jesus. And most people would probably say, you know, he was a good teacher, or he was a moral example, or, you know, he seemed to say some really good things about peace and love and your neighbor and giving to people. And But then I think if we ask those same people about church, they would say something very different if there are people who weren't going to a church. They might have had a bad experience. They might have a perception about church that has colored the way they think about it. And I think there are two reasons why people who have a negative view of church do so. One, I think, from my perspective, is a good reason. It's understandable. It's right. And it's this. I think the church, in many ways, is like a hospital. It's a hospital for sinners, It's a place where people come when they know they need help. Their lives are in trouble. They don't know what to do. Things are falling apart. And so they come to a place like church, and they say, help me. And at the same time, there are people there whose lives maybe are not falling apart, but they know that they can't keep moving forward uh, without the help of others, without the help of God. So people see that from the outside, and they're like, well, look at all those people with problems in there. You know, there's a bunch of hypocrites. Well, I'm not sure that's a very fair assessment. The church is like a hospital for sinners, but there's another reason why people have a negative perception of church, and I don't think it's a very good reason. There are a lot of churches that have people in them uh, who measure their standing before God, before other people, by how many good things they can do you know, by how many uh, ways that they can see people, have people see them contributing uh, to the congregation. They make their whole lives about being perfectly morally upright. Some people, there's, there's an author uh, named Flannery O'Connor, and she says that some people try to avoid Jesus by avoiding sin, never letting him really inside them to change their hearts. They got it all together on the outside, but the inside is a mess. I want to tell you a story about, about me. Uh, I gave my life to, to Christ when I was in junior high. And in high school, I was running an errand with a friend. I think this must have been my junior year in high school. And we were having a conversation about following God. I don't know what the conversation was, something about our faith. And we were going back and forth, and, and finally she just kind of shut down 
And I thought, what is going on? You know, she's, did I say something to offend her? I couldn't understand it. And, and so I asked her, I said, you know, what's going on? She said, I'm, I'm kind of sick and tired of you treating me with a holier-than-thou attitude. I thought, what? How dare you? <laughs> I did no such thing. I was furious. I was defensive. Um, I began to think of all the things that I was doing for God and for people. You know, all these ways that I was contributing how in the world could she have gotten that idea that I had a holier-than-thou perspective? But as I thought about what she said to me over the next couple weeks, I think I began to realize that while my faith uh, was not insincere, but it was mostly focused on external behavior, uh, on conforming to what I thought kind of you were supposed to do as a Christian, things that I thought I should be doing rather than letting God kind of work from the inside out change me and let that change what I did. I was doing a lot of good things, but I think I was motivated by fear, by anxiety, by performance, by comparison, by insecurity. Those were the things that were driving me to act in certain ways. Most people that um, have not given their lives to Christ, I think, fall in kind of two categories. Um, And I'm not trying to pigeonhole people to something, but this is just a summary, a generalization And I think one of these categories we can call self-discovery. That is their approach to life, their approach to faith, Um, even if they would say that they don't have a faith. It is a kind of faith to take this path. Self-discovery. Moral relativity. It's the motto of 21st century secular America. Live it up. Make your own way. Find what works for you. Experiment. Tolerate everybody except the intolerant. This is uh, Lindsay Lohan. She's an actress, and I'm not meaning to pick on her, but she's going to represent something for us. Um, And I'm not picking on her because the story in the scripture we're going to read shows us that God is extending grace to everybody, Lindsay, us included. (laughs) You may remember her from the movie The Parent Trap when she was a little little gal, and she played both twins, and, you know, a star from the beginning. Well, she ends up multiple times in rehab and recovery, life falling apart, you know, before the age of 20. You know, what happened? I think in some ways she represents this sort of, I'm just going to, you know, do it all, go crazy, extreme, uh, make my own way, no rules, I'm invincible sort of thing. Okay, well, how about Oprah? (laughs) I hope I don't get booed out of the room here. In some ways, Oprah embodies most things about this worldview that people think are good. Uh, Pick and choose the best from every faith tradition and create something new and wonderful. Um, Find the the light within you. You know, grab onto the the powerful force in the universe. Um, Make your own new way. The Bible says in Proverbs 14 that there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. The other group, we have the self-discovery kind of approach to life, faith. The other side of this coin is what I call moral conformity, doing all the right things. These people try to control God and others by living a very morally upright life, making sure that their good deeds always outweigh their bad deeds, kind of living life with a scale, 
Is my good outweighing my bad? You might call this earning your way to heaven. If I live a good enough life, surely God will let me into heaven. But just think about all of the clergy sex scandals that have come up in the news over the last 10 years. Catholic Church, Protestant Church, people in the news. Uh, what do you, how do you reconcile that? And I can't make a judgment on each of those people, but there's something wrong. If, if, if somebody's abusing a child for 20, 30 years, something's not right on the inside. There's this external uh, conformity to a certain kind of behavior, but something is still broken on the inside. Here's what Jesus says about these moral conformity kind of folks. And he's pretty strong here. He's speaking to religious people. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, religious people. You hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Think about all the religious movements throughout history that have brought oppression and violence and discrimination and pain and death whether it was the Nazis, um, the LRA in Uganda, the Branch Davidians in Texas, the Spanish Inquisition, the Crusades. There's a story in the New Testament that I think speaks to the heart of these two approaches to life, self-discovery, moral conformity. Uh, It's a story that we know as the prodigal son the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. But what I'd like for us to do is to rethink about this word prodigal. Um, God is truly the prodigal one in the story. The word prodigal has a couple meanings. Uh, We usually think that it means wayward, you know, somebody who's gone off. But it means this, recklessly extravagant and having spent everything. Well, that is true of the young son in this story that we'll read about, it is more true of God in how he relates to us, that he is extravagant, that he spends everything. Let me read this. You're welcome to follow along on the screen or in your Bibles. This is uh, Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. Jesus is telling this parable, this story, to a group of religious people, these teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against you 
against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, What was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry, and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. What's really happening in this story? Both of these sons are lost. Both of them are separated from the father at different times, and both of them want the father's stuff more than they want the father. Verse 12, the very beginning says, the the younger son says to the father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the son is literally saying, Look, give me my inheritance. Essentially, he's saying, I wish you were dead. I mean, don't you usually get an inheritance after a parent dies? He wanted the father's stuff, not the father. So to give him his inheritance in this culture, the father didn't just have to go make a withdrawal from the bank account. He would have had to sell off land. He would have had to sell livestock. I mean, that's where people's money was. Everyone in the area would have known it and would have thought the father was an idiot for doing so. It would have been humiliating for this father. Story goes on. And you may know what happens from here. The younger son uh, wastes all his inheritance on prostitutes, who knows what else, with no money and a famine where he's living. He gets so desperate and he gets hired on to feed pigs, which would have been the most humiliating job for a young Jewish guy. A pig was the dirtiest animal, extremely unclean. So deciding to return home, he wants to ask his father for forgiveness, to be hired on uh, as kind of a day laborer for his father, possibly with the intention of paying his father back. The son has a major change of heart. So we move forward. Verse 20 says this, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. When the father runs to his son, it is surprising to us even now but nothing close to how appalling this would have been to Jesus' original hearers to whom he was telling this story. First century Palestinian men did not run. Women ran, children ran, but dignified men did not run. It would have been humiliating for them. And neither did they forgive 
the offenses of insolent children so easily. The father doesn't just forgive the son, but he restores him to full sonship with all the rights that that entailed, including a renewed inheritance. He now had a stake in what was left again. And then the family throws a huge party. We're not talking a birthday party. This is like a wedding reception. It's the kind of party a family only throws a couple times in their lives. It's big, it's extravagant, and it's showy. Verse 25, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. The older brother was working, doing what a good son was supposed to do, right? When he hears what's happening, he becomes furious, what the father has done with this, this younger brother. And then the father does it again, just like before. He goes out to this brother. He went out to meet the young son, and he goes out to the older brother. Why was the older brother so furious? First of all, he says, he tells us, he goes, you never gave me a party like that. You know, what's up? <laughs> but he could have had one. The father says so. Secondly, he's furious because all the money being spent on this lavish party and the money being spent to reinstate the younger son is literally the inheritance of the older brother. It's his. The younger son got his stuff. Everything that the father has left will go to the older son now. So when the younger son comes back in, he's literally getting the older brother's inheritance. When the father says, everything I have, in, ha, everything I have is yours, that is literally true. So the father had gone out to bring this son back in at great expense to the older brother. But the older brother will not come in and celebrate. What we have to understand about this parable, like I said earlier, is that both of these sons are lost, if we can use that word. Their, their relationship with the father is broken. They're both alienated, but just in two, two fundamentally different ways, these ways that we talked about. The younger brother's plan to control his life, to control God, and to control other people is the path of self-discovery. Live it up. Make your own rules. Figure out what works for you. And then the older brother's plan to control his life, to control God, to control other people, is the path of moral conformity. Check all the boxes. Do it all right. Don't step out of line. Surely God will bless you if you live that way. Clearly, both of these strategies are missing the Father's heart in this story. And they miss the heart of the gospel, which literally means the good news. They are both self-salvation projects. These are the attempts of both of these sons to save themselves. Neither one has anything to do with grace. And grace is the very heart of the gospel. Grace, here's a definition for it. The freely given unmerited favor of God. Unmerited favor and love of God. A gift we did not and cannot earn. It's a gift. Something you don't earn. So when Jesus is telling this parable, all these people listening would have clearly seen the younger brother. He's lost. He's got problems. But he is pointing this story at the religious people. He's pointing this story at the older brothers. He concludes by showing how the older brother was lost too. And to top it off, the younger son, at the end of the story, the younger son is restored to relationship with the father. The older brother is still alienated. Surely that would have made Jesus' hearers mad. I want to tell you guys a story uh, about my brother. Actually, I want you to see a story about my little brother. This is Caleb. 
Um, he's uh, trying to become a firefighter in Denver. Uh, he just got married this last summer. He's one of my best friends, but he is an adventure nut. He lives for thrills. <laughs> he lives for uh, adventures. So I get a phone call. Uh, this is like in March 2007. I get a phone call at like 4.30 in the morning. He says, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm sleeping. <laughs> he said, do you have CNN? No, I don't have CNN. Well, go find CNN. Caleb, it's 4.30. What, what, you just got to find, find some CNN and watch it. Why? Because I'm on it. Oh, man, what is going on? He hangs up the phone. Thankfully, I heard some more of the news before uh, I got to watch the news clip. But this is something from a, a local Miami news station that summarizes part of his adventure that he had. Karen, thank you. A group of people on spring break back on dry land after a scary night at sea. They were sailing just off Elliott Key when their boat began taking on water. Tisha Lewis joins us live right now from the Coast Guard Station on Miami, on Miami Beach with more on the story this morning. Tisha, good morning. Good morning, Pam. The group of friends from Alaska and New York came to Miami to soak up the sun. Instead, they've become the center of attention after they were stuck, stranded, and their boat began to sink out at sea. Yeah, That's all I got left. Caleb Walters and Don Price are clutching all they have left as they stand outside the Miami Beach Coast Guard. We got, we got one dry bag. I, we threw our electronics, we threw our phones, we threw my, our computers. We had two computers on there, our phones and passports, wallets, and that was it. Walters and Price, along with five other college students, were forced to dump their belongings offshore after their boat began to sink. Here's some pictures from what was supposed to be a dream vacation. Instead, these snapshots will serve as a reminder of the scary situation that happened out at sea for the group of buddies. Everybody's asleep. I'm at the helm, just guiding along, and next thing you know, like, guys wake up and lights come on in the cabins and there's like six inches of a foot of water. You just, you're so busy getting water out and thinking of what to do next that you're just more worried about getting stuff done and you don't have time to think about holy yeah. crap we're in the middle of the ocean we're 20 miles from shore sinking this is the rescue video from a coast guard chopper of the 36 foot catamaran the boat started going down late last night about 10 miles off biscay national parks elliott key the coast guard says the teens were saved thanks to some life-saving equipment and quick thinking that's the most important thing if you're going to be out in the water make sure you have the proper safety equipment and safety equipment like life jackets, which we're told all eight of the friends did have, which helped to help save their lives. Also, the warm weather didn't hurt either. We're live in Miami Beach, Tisha Lewis, NBC6. The catamaran that they were sailing had a leak near the toilet, and uh, they woke up in the middle of the night, and it was sinking, and they were 20 miles off the coast, and thankfully, like she said, they thought quickly. So when I heard about this... I can't even tell you all the emotions that went through my mind. Like, we could have lost Caleb. <laughs> you know, this could have been it. He could have been gone. But I was thinking, you know, had I heard about this while it was happening, if there was anything I could have done as his older brother, I would have done whatever it took to get to Miami. I don't know what I would have done, you know. I, I'm kind of scared of the water myself. And so I couldn't have done anything. But there is something inside of me that I think God put in me, this love for my brother, uh, it, I wouldn't have tried to go after Caleb for pats on the back, but it's because I love him. I love my brother. In Luke 15, there's 10 verses before we started this story. There's two other stories that Jesus tells right before this 
the story of the lost son. One is a story about uh, 100 sheep that a shepherd has. There's 99 sheep that he leaves to go find one that's lost. The shepherd goes to look for the sheep. There's a woman that has 10 coins, she, 10 silver coins. She loses one. She scours her house, cleans it to look for this one. She finds it. She celebrates. So the third story comes. Jesus is telling this, these stories together. People would have thought, this is kind of a literary device he's using. They would have thought, okay, somebody is going to go look for this son that is lost. Well, nobody goes looking and they would have noticed that. And part of what Jesus is saying here is there is no good older brother in this story. A true older brother would have gone looking for that lost younger brother. He would have done whatever it cost to go find him and to bring him back in. Like if I had the opportunity, I'm not trying to say I'm the good older brother, but that kind of love for the younger brother was not present in this story. Jesus leaves the story hanging. Who is the older brother? Who can bring in the younger son? Who can go find him? Jesus finishes the story with his life. He concludes that parable with the rest of his life. He demonstrates that he is the true older brother in the way he lives, the way he dies for the sins of people, the way he shows his power over death through resurrection, that he is the one that can restore people to relationship with God. He is the true older brother. But still, there's an older brother missing in the story. And what Jesus is saying, not just that I am the true older brother, but he's saying, you children of God, you are my agents to go find the lost brothers and sisters and bring them in. You're supposed to be what this older brother was not. Jesus is kind of poking these Pharisees in the chest saying, you are not this kind of person, but you should be. I'm going to show you that I ultimately am this kind of person. Edmund Clowney, who was a pastor in Pennsylvania, he recounts this story of a U.S. soldier that was um, missing during the Vietnam War. Um, the family of this soldier uh, couldn't get any information about his whereabouts. They didn't know if he was missing, if he was killed, if he was injured. They didn't know what was going on. So the older brother of this missing soldier um, flies to Vietnam at his own expense, and at great risk to himself, he begins to search the jungles and battlefields for his missing brother. And as the story uh, is told, he is not hurt in this, in this um, quest it's because both people on both sides of the, of the battle heard about this brother, and they respected what he was doing, and he became known as the brother. He was an older brother uh, going to find his lost younger brother at great cost to himself. 2 Corinthians 5 says this. This is Paul writing in this letter to the Corinthian church. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us this ministry, this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I think when we see this story from 
the book of Luke, when we listen to, to Jesus tell it, I think there's two ways we can respond to it. One of them is this. If you have not given your life to Christ, if you've never made him the Lord of your life, trusted him in his grace for your salvation, I think you may need to say, what is my self-salvation plan? Uh, is it one of self-discovery? Is it moral conformity? Am I, trying, am I hoping that the good I do will outweigh the bad in the end? Is that what I'm banking on? If that's true, if you are able to recognize that and turn from it and turn to God's grace, his forgiveness, through Jesus, you can come back to the open arms of the Father. That's one way you can respond to this story. The gospel is this. When we live as the rescued sons and daughters of God, we discover two things. One, we are more wicked, evil, and sinful than we had ever dared to believe. At the same time, we are more loved, cherished, and accepted than we ever dared to hope. When we uh, ask God for forgiveness, when we say, please forgive me for these things that I've done against you, and uh, I want to make you the Lord of my life, we're not just saying, please forgive me for this one thing I did here and for what I said to this person. Uh, we also have to ask God for forgiveness for the reasons we do good things. Is the reason you're doing something good to earn favor with God? That's the kind of thing we has to have to ask for forgiveness to. The other way you can respond to this story um, is this way. Out of love for the Father, not out of obligation or duty, uh, moral conformity, but out of love for the Father, go and bring other sons and daughters into the family. Bring them to the Father. It's going to be costly. We see that. There's no way for forgiveness to happen without it costing somebody something significant. It was costly for the older brother to have the younger one reinstated in the family. It was infinitely more costly for Jesus to reconcile, to make our relationship with God right again. And it will be costly for us to, to invite others back into this family, to invite others into a life-transforming relationship with God. In commissioning his followers for mission, Jesus is asking us to be that kind of older brother, that kind of older sister. But how? How do we do that? One way is we, we look at Jesus' life. He is the model for how we meet people's needs where they are, how we talk to them about God, how we love, how we serve. But sometimes a model is just not enough. In Christianity, a model is just not enough. A model uh, just leads you to try again, try harder, do it better next time, you know, buck up. The gospel of Jesus is about a new power, we saw that in 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. This power enables us to be this kind of person for others because Jesus was this kind of person for us. This is the opportunity that we have uh, to invite these kind of brothers and sisters back into the transforming grace of Jesus. Now what? Is it receiving the free gift of God's grace? For you, is it living as a true son or daughter of the Father? Let me close with one statement that I think is a great summary. 
Dr. Timothy Keller summarizes this parable, this Luke 15 parable story, in this way. Jesus is showing us the God of great expenditure, who is nothing if not prodigal toward us, his children. God's reckless grace is our greatest hope, a life-changing experience. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I am most grateful uh, in this room. Uh, I'm sure there are others that are so grateful, more than we can even say with words, God, for your grace. Um, I see that I do not have it within me to be good enough. And so I am putting everything I have on your grace. Thank you that you gave that to me. Thank you that you extend that Uh, offer of grace and forgiveness to every person that is alive, that has lived, that will live. Thank you. And help us, God, to, um, as we follow you, to become the kind of brother that is not in this story, to become the kind of true older brother that you are to us. By your power and, and because you're worth it, God, would you help that to be true in our lives? Thank you. Amen.